0: Become a sponsor today by visiting patreon.com backslash psychology is.
1: Hello and welcome to the Psychology Is podcast. I am Nick Fortino. This is our 58th episode of the podcast, and today I'm joined by Kent Schultz. Welcome, Kent. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And... What we're here to talk about is, is your story. I think it's of interest to a great many people, and I'll let you tell your story, but I'll share with the audience that Kent and I have been corresponding online quite a bit, and we did have a preliminary conversation where I got many of the details of the story, and and so here we are, you know, officially recording the podcast episode where I have some background knowledge about what you've been going through. And I would interpret it as just a story of, of resilience, a story of really actively seeking support and treatments that would be effective and having to Having to try many different things in order to find relief and support, but ultimately succeeding in finding supportive things and reaching a point now where you feel much better and are finding yourself able to function much better than you were. And I just think that, you know, you are you've kind of reached the light at the end of the tunnel that so many people here is really there, but can't really see. And so I just think it's very important for people of, of all types, whether they are, are professionals or people who can personally relate to what you're about to share or anyone just interested in psychology, this is kind of a mini case study. Um, so, so again, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate all the listeners who are present right now. And I'd love to take this journey, listening to you. Give us any background that you would like, that you feel is relevant uh, from your childhood, your upbringing, and then dive deeply into when you would say that your suffering and your struggles with mental health began, and then the journey that ensued from that point. Sure.
0: Well, thank you for that uh, framing, Nick. And uh, it's a very open framing, which I appreciate. It gives me the freedom to speak from whatever is coming up as most important to me today. I will try and keep this, I guess, kind of chronological to start. Um, But as we explore topics, as topics come up that are of interest to people that you think will be of interest to people, Definitely, feel free to uh, you know interject and and uh, let me know at any time, and we can pick up the chronological thread if 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 uh, that makes sense later on. But I'm happy to go down whatever avenues this uh, conversation leads us down. So, yeah. So, I'm 38 years old. I'll just start with that, I guess. I did not really have any signs of overt. So called mental illness when I was a kid. Um, I would say, like so many kids, I had what felt to me like a maybe an ordinary level of shyness, uh, social awkwardness, um, melancholy. It's kind of a serious kid. Um, but, you know, I had friends. I was so called well adjusted. Um, I did well in school um I didn't have any major traumas as a kid. I didn't have any, an early experience of of like loss or death um, or, or or accidents or anything like that. No big T traumas as they say these days that I know of. Um, did well in high school, went to college was very motivated felt pretty motivated in college to, get a practical education and have a well-paying job and a, at least a somewhat prestigious job when I finished school and and those were kind of the things that were important to me I, I didn't really have any notion of you know but is this my vocation is it my calling? what do I really get passionate about? What do I really care about? I was always a good math student as a kid and math and science, um and i liked computers a lot as a teenager and i decided to study computer science and liked my programming courses and um the the tech industry let's see this so this was after the first dot com bust and kind of tech jobs the tech industry was kind of coming back up and it seemed like a very promising career path and so i Did well in school, finished and started working, and was apparently getting along well and succeed, you know, having success in my career. And I moved away from the Midwest. I'm from Missouri and I live back in Missouri now. Um, I moved to California and worked there for many years at different companies. I was conscious from early on in my uh, career in, in IT or in tech that, um, I wasn't just happy to do any kind of programming and, uh, and, uh, work at whatever company sort of gave me the best salary or things like that. It really mattered to me what the mission of the company was, uh, and that I could get behind it. And I really struggled to find, I, I saw way, way more companies that I've, maybe did not think were outright unethical, but just were doing things that I didn't think needed to be done in the world. So early on in my sort of mid twenties, early on in my career, I started having kind of a sensitivity to to that. Um, but I was doing well. Eventually I moved out to the San Francisco Bay area, Silicon Valley, and um, got a job there with, a company that was still the best, the best uh, tech job that I ever had because I really believed in the company's mission. And I left there after a year um, because I got an unexpected uh, job offer from uh, from Uber to be a, to go be a software engineer at Uber. And this was when Uber was a private company still, but they had an enormous valuation for a private company. And so it was attracting a lot of people, like me. I'm afraid to say, who had dollar signs in their eyes and just were coming there to get big, big stock options. And everybody knew they were going to go public in a few years. And that's why I went there. Um, I felt very out of place there. I felt I felt the, toxic, the 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 culture pretty immediately. I felt was toxic. You couldn't trust your fellow engineers. You didn't know which managers you could trust. There was, it seemed like the leadership liked that there was a lot of intercompetition among even frontline engineers and then kind of lateral competition among managers, too. And projects would come and go, and you'd start working on something, and then a new person would get hired from Google or some prestigious place and say, no, scrap that. We're not doing any of that. We're taking a completely different direction. Very chaotic. I mean, it was kind of what many people think of as the definition of startup life, and many people thrive in that and they like that. I I did not. To me, it, it 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 was it the pace of things coming and projects coming and then suddenly going away and who's in charge here and does anybody know what's going on. To me, was kind of like a distillation of the absurdity that not just tech work, but um, I would say white collar work in general can often be not, it was, it really highlighted that just like, I don't know that, that what I'm doing every day is making any difference. I was programming this thing for the last month. Now it's in the trash bin. Like, I, you know, like what am I doing here? And I don't, so the sort of, I guess the sort of, sort of existential melancholy that it maybe already, always been in me as a kid, really, really was rising. And around this time, I discovered um, some thinkers and philosophers who began to influence me. And I could not stay till the end of my first year at the company. For those who don't know, in the tech industry, to earn any of your stock options, you have to stay for at least one year to invest any of them. And I was just driving myself crazy with anxiety. And I had terrible heartburn, which is something I had struggled with, but it got way, way, way worse. And my my acid reducers weren't enough. And it I would have this terrible heartburn and, and this all this somatic. I mean, I would not have called it that way at that time. I didn't really know about that, but I just had all this like somatic stuff going on when I would go into meetings at Uber. And I got bad enough I went to a gastroenterologist and got an endoscopy to make sure I wasn't getting an ulcer. I was I was not, but I was I was very unwell mentally and I was questioning just life. I wasn't sure what what the, what meaning kind of first my job held. And then over the years following that. So this was in 2016 that I left in the years, and in sort of starting in 2016, following that, I had this creeping sense of like, I'm not sure why my job matters or why I do what I do. Why, why Why do I actually, did I consciously choose this? Or am I just, I'm chasing money, but like I know kind of deep down that that's not the most important thing. And it was just a very confusing time. I was in this very, ex- living in one of the most expensive cities to live in, in in the country if not the world actually i wasn't living in san francisco i lived in berkeley with my then girlfriend and she had a well paying job too and uh you know i felt like we're we're here in the bay area we're trying to have a go of it and the reason to be here is to try and make a lot of money so i maybe i can quit uber but then like i got to find another company that has like a mission that i really care about and i can't go back to my old one i didn't know what i was doing I didn't know where it turned next. And, you know, the idea kind of of like uh, psychiatric uh, illness, you know, I kind of started to entertain that idea and immediately didn't hold, and immediately didn't make a lot of sense to me and never really had. I I was not aware at all yet of any of the, um, although I always had been interested in, human nature and psychology, even from my college days, I I didn't um I wasn't aware of of any of the uh, of the what used to be called the anti psychiatry movement and now I've kind of become a critical psychiatry movement. I wasn't aware of any of the criticisms and arguments of that. But yet I always kind of felt inclined towards that. I felt that if I were to take antidepressants or some other treatment that that was not going to just help me to be happy at a place like Uber or even in the tech industry. I just, so I resisted that for, for some years. I did not go on psychiatric meds for, for some years. Um. And uh,
1: yes, e- a quick question. Sure. You mentioned the, that you, I think during this time period began reading more certain of of certain thinkers and philosophers Mm -hmm. and i remember in our in our previous conversation you brought up the work of william james Mm -hmm. and the the concept of the sick soul yes i was just wondering if you could kind of share your reflections on first your your understanding of that concept and how it kind of maybe how you were able to relate to it definitely definitely so I,
0: I I, heard about, I, I didn't even hear about William James until maybe 2018. I read about him in um, the writer, the journalist, uh, Michael Pollan's book. Um, people may know Michael Pollan from his writing on, on food and organic food, um, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and In-Defensive Food. And then he wrote a bombshell book in 2018 about the psychedelic renaissance, so-called, uh, for using psychedelics like LSD and mushrooms for helping mental illness, um, for curing depression and uh, addiction and things like this. For those who haven't heard of that, but I think it's pretty well, um, out there now, but. And for people just so they know it's called how to change your mind.
1: Yes. That's what you're that's, what, yeah.
0: that's the book. Yes. So I had read a few of pollen's books before. I was not interested in anything to do with psychedelics to me when I was at, at when I was that 8 Let's see, that would have been about 30 when I read that book. I had never done anything like that. I had never done any, you know, drugs as a teenager or anything. And so it's not like that naturally appealed to me. But he was a mainstream figure, um, you know, a, a trustworthy kind of straight-laced, hard-nosed journalist figure who was writing about that. So he referenced William James in the book. And psychedelic advocates often do. There's a, a famous uh, passage, maybe one of James's most quoted passage, passages, um, from maybe his most well-known work, uh, his lectures, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which I think were delivered in 1902 and 1903 or thereabouts. And he had one lecture on the mystical experience. And anyway, we can go into that topic in a bit if you like, but um, since you mentioned the sixth soul, um, I would just say that the Michael Pollan's book pointed me to James. I read the varieties of religious experience and the chapter that really popped for me, and grabbed my attention was not the mystical experience chapter. Although I would soon thereafter go on to dabble with psychedelics. Um, the, the chapter or the lecture that popped was the sixth soul. He has kind of a pair of lectures. One About the healthy-minded, people who seem to be constitutionally just almost always optimistic and joyful and just seeing the best in life, seeing the best in people and in humanity in general. And the world is just this shimmering, wondrous place to the healthy-minded. And He gives the example, I think, of Walt Whitman. This was one of James's favorite examples across many of his writings and essays for the healthy-minded. And then he writes on the sixth soul and spoke and gave a lecture on the sixth soul, which he was firmly considered himself to be. Um, in fact, one of the examples that he gives in there is it's actually of himself—an experience he had of of uh, of, of melancholy—and he did not. He kind of cited it as an anonymous example, but scholars would later realize mm-hmm. it was his own. But the example from that chapter, from that lecture that stood out to me was the example of Leo Tolstoy. I did not know much about Tolstoy. I never read War and Peace or Anna Karenina. I was not that into literature in, as a young person that I would say still not very well read across literature, kind of classic works of classic literature. But I did read one of his later existential works in college, I think for a writing class, The Death of Ivan Illich is a small a novella, very existential, and was very influenced. He wrote that after his own existential crisis, um, a period of despair. Tolstoy, when he was about 50, after he had achieved world fame and had all this land and all his children and a wonderful family and All the success in life that anyone could theoretically want from the outside looking in. And he couldn't put together any reasonable meaning for his life starting around 50. And so James, William James, cites the example of him going through his crisis. And um, I went and later read um, Tolstoy's Confession, uh, where he gives the full account kind of of how it went on for years for him and the spiritual turn that he took in his life, and how he kind of left his old identity behind as a famous artist, and intellectual, influential artist. He came to abhor what the circle that he used to keep. He said, we were teaching people. We didn't know what we were teaching them. We were just making stuff up. We would contradict each other. Nobody noticed that it wasn't making sense at the time, but we were all making great money. And he just so he was a great man who had all the material success that one could want, but and so I, I read this in, in, in James's lecture and realized like you can have you can have it all together, and and still things cease to have meaning for you. Now, James is very framing of this as the sick sold, perhaps a modern psychologist or psychiatrist who is more um, oriented towards just a strictly biological model or the materialistic view of human beings as just mere material, might view that as kind of antiquated and, you know, like, yeah, it's not it's spiritual sickness. What do you mean? This is just like a, bio, a biological thing going on in your brain. Like Tolstoy, it was just, if he if he had had access to modern psychiatry, so, yeah, and that, it, what would it, what, If he had had access to those tools and had gone to a psychiatrist, what would they have told him? Good question. Good question. Go back to what you know. What I was told by so many psychiatrists in my worst year of my life was, well, you probably need to get back to work so you don't have all this free time, and you probably need to do the kind of work that you were trained for, even though I was constantly telling them I didn't want to do that and believed that that being feeling like I must do that work for 40-plus hours a week was what was driving me mad. And if Tolstoy had done that and had gone back to just writing kind of uh, wonderful fictional novels, and no matter how many people would have enjoyed them, how much money he would have made, we would not have had his later spiritual works. He would not have inspired... Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King and the nonviolence movement of the 20th century.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, so I realized in reading James and some of the other examples in the Sixth Soul and the in, and examples and his chapter on conversion experiences that, as he said in, I think, the first lecture to the varieties of religious experience, many r- religious geniuses go through periods Of melancholy in their lives, and that's just the nature of it. And I realized, like that, to be in despair is not. This is tricky how to put this, because psychologists and psychiatrists will not like to hear this. Many, many of them will not um, will not like to hear me saying this to fellow sufferers, as I once was. But there's often this idea that to be depressed and despair. And I won't say I won't speak on like things like psychosis um, and uh, other states of high distress or suffering that I don't have experience with. I'm, I'm speaking in this podcast mostly just about kind of despair. Um, it's often assumed that that is a state of where you are, you where you are not encountering truth. You are in a deluded state about the nature of the world, about the nature of how hopeful, how much hope you actually have to find meaning in your life and make something good of it. And certainly there are, but I would say, I I, I would love to hear, to engage with you on this and to hear your thoughts on this too. But like the the, the very existence of it being there, to me, I, re, I always felt from even before I went to Uber, is, is a rudder, or, or in some cases at least, in my case, cases like me, is, is, is pointing you towards something. You, you have something, and your, you're not living your life in a way that matters to you. Yeah. You haven't made your own path yet. You're maybe, you took a job or maybe married someone or moved to a city or made some other major life decision because you're pleasing somebody else in your life you're trying to keep up appearances for somebody else but it's not true to you it's not what you would it's not what makes you feel alive
1: it's beautiful i agree with with everything you just said and i I really appreciate you touching on that and i remember from i remember being introduced to the varieties of religious experience when i was doing my psychology schooling and I remember the chapter on the sixth soul as well, and I remember another word for it too. They would use is the morbid minded, um, but I also remember the key point that the six souls tend to have greater insight into the human condition, and that they are, by virtue of their suffering, much more motivated to kind of get to the bottom of the nature of human existence, and and ultimately, they have to answer the question, why is life worth living? Whereas to the healthy-minded, like you said, the constitutionally happy people, uh, they don't really have to wrestle with that question. It's kind of just evident to them, it doesn't even cross their mind that that there needs to be some grand meaning to their lives. But but I think it's it's a very important personal, existential, philosophical question. Why? Why go on living? Mm -hmm. And then when a person is suffering intensely, when they're in despair, that question is paramount. uh, Because it becomes very difficult to go on living. So the reason better be really good. Mm -hmm. So so I, I just I hear what you're saying about despair, both that. Um, It is often framed as you must not be kind of perceiving the world clearly. There must be, like you said, some delusion involved. Mm -hmm. And then also just the nature of despair as pushing you toward uh, gaining clarity and insight on the real meaning of your life Mm -hmm. and questioning everything, questioning all of your circumstances, the way you are, the way the things you do and whether that is actually authentic to who you believe yourself to be Mm -hmm. so yeah those are my thoughts i appreciate the framing too you know because many people are in despair and i think this helps them maybe realize that it's not in it's not in vain it's not it's not a pointless thing it's kind of it's It's easy, for example, to see how other unpleasant emotional states have their place, like fear protects us from danger. But it's not as easy to see how something like despair or a deep depression has functionality in our lives. But I think what you've highlighted here is kind of the functionality of despair, depression and human suffering. Mm -hmm. Yes,
0: it's. I came to believe that it's something to be listened to and paid attention to. And of course, many of us, um, you know, spend so much of when, when, when we are getting kind of having a low level of, of despair or, or depression or unsatisfactoriness or something about our life isn't satisfactory, but we just can't quite put our finger on it. So we just keep plodding along every day as we must. And that's, and that is, is admirable, especially say you have dependents, you have kids, you are doing what you must do to provide for them, and you, you you haven't had the luxury that I had of like being able to step back and really go. And so, for the person who doesn't have the time to do that, they just feel that they must keep marching on, and so they will do things like. Drink alcohol every night, um, even if it's just only one or two. You know, the government may say that one or two a night is okay, and so like it's fine. Everybody does it, you know. And um, and other um, you know, um, uh, in the long run, un- unhelpful behaviors that um, prevent people from remembering that they have that kind of low level anxiety or despair, uh, restlessness confusion there um and uh i suppose that's a good segue to say that like uh, you know i i drank for many years um from college uh i got very interested in craft beer um never really went to the frat parties and drink the cheap domestic beer. I just started with craft beer from the beginning and and loved it right away. I mean, I had to spend maybe a month or so acquiring a taste for it. And um, once I had, it was just, I was obsessed with beer and I began homebrewing in college and continued doing that. When I got out of college, I entered some competitions, homebrewing competitions. I ended up winning some awards, um, I became a certified beer judge at one point. I mean, beer was like my main hobby. Uh, it, it, I, I kind of think I, I think I knew from like the start of my career, right after college, that like it wasn't the thing I cared most about. Like it was bringing home the money, but I always had this dream of like starting a, a microbrewery someday. And in, in my off hours, just beer was like the thing. It was what I cared about. And when I would travel, I mean, it would all it would be all about you know I got to find the rare beers and the unusual styles that I can't get in my hometown. And I traveled internationally, uh, at, you know, and, and tried beer. Uh, went to the pubs in England and went to the beer halls in, in Bavaria, Germany, and and it was just a huge part of my life. And um, I was never at a point where it was obvious to anyone in my life least about me that it was causing any problems for me um i didn't lose any jobs over it i wasn't you know calling in sick to work because i was hungover and and it certainly wasn't you know like hitting my girlfriend or shouting at her even i mean looking back i think probably we would get into little bickerings and silly arguments that wouldn't have happened without the drinking um and more than that, I think like it just it it, it keeps people kind of um, in the dark about like their inner life, and it just does not. I as I experienced it, and so many have like it does not make you your best, most um, charitable self. Um, and but yet, I had I, I I I didn't I didn't think I had any kind of problem. And I, I thought I love this, and maybe I'll own a craft brewery someday. And then one day, in uh, this was maybe in 2017, late 2017. So after the kind of the kind of uh, existential crisis was like starting to pick up and snowball a little bit, I read this article in the Atlantic entitled uh, "The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous," and. You know, being someone who fancied himself as a drinker in control and also someone who was raised Christian and no Lamar considered himself Christian and knowing AA was kind of, uh, you know, a Christian organization. And, you know, I just clicked on it and uh, I thought it would be amusing to read something critical of AA, you know. And in that article, the journalist mentioned uh, a medication. The whole article was not about it but she mentioned a medication called naltrexone. She was telling a kind of a narrative of a guy who sounded a lot like me. He was in his 30s and, and uh, was an attorney, I think, or something, and seemed to be successful, but just was drinking a bit too much, what I kind of call moderate class, like you know, maybe like three to four drinks most nights, a bit more on the weekends, but you're holding it together and you seem to be. And she talks about how he had tried naltrexone, this drug that's an opiate blocker, and uh, specifically if you take it according to a little-known method called the Sinclair method, uh, whereby you take the pill and don't abstain from drinking, but you take the pill and actually intentionally drink while on it. And that helps deconstruct the reward circuitry in your brain that, that... Addicted. That that is the addiction. Um, the idea being, nobody starts with an addicted brain. It takes some time. It's a learned behavior. This is the idea behind this Sinclair Clear Method. And there have been other um, psychologists uh, that I've read about uh, who also have this kind of learned behavior uh, model of addiction. Now, Strychnine helps you unlearn and that behavior. You take this, this opiate blocker. You drink, the endorphin response that normally would light up your opioid receptors is is blocked. And over some months, if you always take the pill before you drink, you stop caring. You become about alcohol. You become apathetic to it. And it just is not on your, it's not something that matters in your life anymore. You don't get cravings anymore. You more or less have reached a cure. If, if to cure is kind of in the lexicon of disease And by the model of the Sinclair method, it's not technically a disease, but, and we can talk more about that if you like, Uh, it's a topic I love to talk about, but um, you uh, have reached a state that is called pharmacological extinction, where your reward circuitry is pretty much uh, 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 dismantled. And so I did this uh, at the end of 2017 and end of 2018, and it pretty well worked in four or five months for me. I could not believe it. I thought at the beginning, I don't want to stop drinking entirely, and if this could help me cut my drinking in half, that would be very healthy for me. I would like that, and that's what I had planned for it to do, but it worked so well that in four or five months, I did not care about drinking anymore. and. I had kind of naively hoped that um I'm going to be much more well mentally. Maybe I'll enjoy work again. Maybe I'll um get a new job. Maybe I'll start to flourish in other ways. But kind of the opposite happened. As I kind of was saying earlier, like it we can it cover it was covering up the depths of my psyche for years. And or or the connection to the soul, if you like. And the crisis around work and meaninglessness kind of got worse. And especially there was also kind of a vacuum hole left in my ego. I started to realize in 2016 that I don't really care about computer programming and this is not, it, I, it had been a part of my identity during school and then during my early career, but like I realized in 2010 then I started shifting into the beer thing. And maybe this is my big, this is kind of who I am as I know a ton about beer, I'm an expert judge and I'm a brewery someday. Well, once the Sinclair method works so well, that possibility was then gone. But I had this, okay, so I'm not a tech guy and I'm not a beer guy. So like, what am I, what am I going after now? What, what matters to me and how do others perceive me? And I don't know what I'm about anymore. You know, it's very confusing, but I'm afraid that, uh, <laughs> kind of a uh, pausing there may, makes his sapmate will make that sound unappealing to people to do that. Um, to take, to take and, and extinguish their uh, creating, cravings for alcohol because for me it did make things more difficult in the long run or in the short in the short run but um in the long run i am so glad that alcohol is out of my life i do still occasionally drink but it's not like a person who used to have a problem and then they haven't drank for haven't drunk for five years or 10 years and then they go back have one one night at new year's and then they just go wild because like you know it's like it's like wow it's like i forgot how good this feels if you do this in clear method it's really not like that um, because again, you've, you've undone the reward every time you have a, a beer or, or a cocktail or something. It's kind of, it kind of is like the first time you ever had one when you were young. Like you get a bit intoxicated. It's It might taste good. It might taste kind of whatever, but it's not like, oh, we're back and I'm going to have a dozen drinks tonight or something. Right. So you feel kind of protected. You are supposed to take the pill when you drink every time the rest of your life and that's kind of the official guidance of uh, those who advocate the, the sinclair method um mm-hmm. i will not pretend that i'm 100 compliant on that every time just because uh of the inconvenience of carrying around a pill for those mm-hmm. three four or five times a year that i might have a beer which is about how often it is now but i guess i would just say to those who might. Hear about that and might be curious to ask their doctor or psychiatrist about maltrexone. That um, you may think now that you cannot imagine your life without alcohol. I understand that that was absolutely me. Um, I mean, given everything I just said about how obsessed I was with it and how much I made it a part of my identity, and my free time and hobby. I can only tell you that from my vantage now, like I am so glad that it's out. I'm so safe. But for those, there are people I've heard of who it does not eradicate their all of their drinking within four or five months. They may go on for years, still having a few drinks a week, having some drinks every weekend, but it's much more in control than they were before. And you really don't realize until you've been taking it for a few months how little control you actually had before if you're a drinker like like i was which is again i kind of called moderate plus but um anyhow um yeah what are your um questions or reflections on
1: that yeah well thanks for asking and i mean the it's i'm getting kind of a a newer a different perception i guess because you did share some of this with me in our first conversation and yet the what i didn't quite realize was how tied drinking was to your sense of self how tied being a beer guy was to your identity and how significant it was to lose two pillars of your identity in a very short time period being the tech guy and the beer guy like you said and just how and then on top of that removal of that kind of important Feature of your identity was, I'm sure, some degree of uh, an exposing of whatever beer was hiding. Uh, like you said, your, your, I forget exactly how you put it, but your, your inner world probably became much more illuminated and clear to see once the cloud of alcohol had been removed. So that, that seems like a, yeah, a very significant part of your journey. And I do appreciate you sharing like the method, because of course, as we know, countless people struggle with alcohol. And I appreciate your message to those people, too, because I think that is exactly what many people need to hear is it's literally impossible for them to imagine their life without alcohol. It's woven in completely. So it's great to hear someone from your perspective for whom alcohol was completely woven into your life. And here you are from a totally different vantage point. Okay. Without it's functioning without it's. Yeah. So, so this just to get the chronological timeline in place in my head, um, this process of taking naltrexone and that few months of kind of eradicating your craving for alcohol was around. Twenty seventeen.
0: Yeah, I started it in late twenty seventeen, and uh, I think I probably reached pharmacological uh, extinction by April or May or June of twenty
1: eighteen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And at this point, you are still living in California, correct? And you are beginning to feel an intensification of your struggles internally. Yes. And where did where does it go from here?
0: Well, let me think here. I guess I would also say that um, there was some loss in my family um, right around the time I was I was going through the uh, uh, quitting drinking or tapering down, and it was both of my remaining grandparents and then uh, the adopted son of my sister, 13 year old son, she had died of leukemia they were all three within just a few months of each other. And um, I don't know how much that amplified my, my mental distress, my emotional distress, but um, I guess I will just flag that that was happening here. And um, I took, there was a, by this point, I was um, kind of irregular with work. I was still accepting certain jobs in the tech industry my then girlfriend was, um, very, was very, she was not pressuring me to like, well, why aren't you working? You know, like if I was out of work for a couple of months, she was like, you know, we had enough margin. We had enough margin and she knew I was trying to get better and she was very supportive. So I wasn't trying to, I was lucky to not be in the position of having to rush back into any job, just any tech job that I knew would make me unhappy. I was still in the process of trying to tell myself that if I just find the right company with a mission that I can really care about and a great culture and I love the founders are awesome and they and then that they might have this like toxic masculine kind of energy that many tech companies like uh, the one I was at in 2016 have or had I don't know how it is today at Uber but I was still hunting around and I, I had one job in 2018 and I think I it for four or five months and i remember when i quit i kind of gave uh looking after my mental health as the reason that i needed to leave and didn't want to burn any bridges and um i went on meditation retreat right after that it was the second or third silent meditation retreat i had been on um I felt guilty after every job that I that I quit. I just I just remember feeling so many times through those years, like why like why do I think I'm so special that I have to find just the perfect thing and I'm not willing to work for years and years. And it's just this kind of job that, you know, why is it not good enough for me? Like it is for everybody else that the job is well paying and is in a nice office and they have free food in there. And some of your coworkers are pleasant and you live in this great fun city and you have enough money. And why is that not good enough for me? I just felt guilty every time I would quit a job. And it felt like after every time I would quit and I was never fired. Um, I just quit. I just kept quitting. Um, It must have been not long after I quit that job in 2018. that. So again, I had read um, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And was, he is, he was careful to say in the book and on his book tour, the podcast tour that he did that year, like, I'm not saying everybody go out there and do this. Oh, this is, I'm not Timothy Leary in the sixties going, everybody turn on, like drop acid and like turn on, I'm, like trying. he's not, I'm not, I'm not trying to turn on the whole culture. He's like, I'm just telling you my experience and some of the neuroscientific research and, you know, you do with, with it what you will. And I was like, well, obviously I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. <laughs> and again, at this point, I had not yet tried any of the official treatments from uh, psychiatry. Mm-hmm. No, no medications, nothing like that. And I did yeah. not. So, really,
1: you you hadn't even met with a psychiatrist at this point. No diagnosis or anything either.
0: That's correct. No diagnosis. I had uh, I had seen a few um, uh, primary care doctors, I and mean, I think one had prescribed me Zoloft. And I just I went out and got the bottle, took it home. Never even took one. I was like, I just knew, I was like, this is dumb. I, I This is not gonna, it might make me, it might mute some things, but you know, it's like, it's like Joanna Moncrief has, has pointed out on your podcast and elsewhere. Like it's, it's the drug centered model. It's, it's not functioning that differently from say alcohol. Like it's, it's kind of like helping you to get by in your life as it is now. If you're a person, and, and I want to say, I recognize that if you are a person who feels constrained to, to stay in the marriage, to stay in the job that you're in now, to keep the major parameters of your life as they are. And you have the kids to take care of, and have, or, or if you don't, you still have, you know, financial needs and, and other, or other responsibilities. And you really just must continue marching on with the, the major elements of your life as they are. Now, then Zo so after something mm-hmm. like that, I, I, I get it. If that's helping you, that's great. But, um, yeah, I kind of think I kind of intuitively felt like that, like basically what Joanna Moncrief and others have said. Let's just like, like this is not that different. It just is going to numb me out a little bit, make me kind of forget that I hate this job and this field so much, and that's not going to help me in the end. Like I'm not going to do that and just try and limp along for five more years in the tech industry if 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 taking three or four psychiatric medications can help. Me. No, I'm going to uproot this. I'm going to get to the bottom of what of what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I decided to try LSD and psilocybin. And I think uh, very early on, that, that first year, 2018, when I started dabbling with psychedelics, I, number one, had kind of naive ideas that, number one, that I can do this alone, that I have no experience with what it's like to be in this state of mind and in uh, the and the kind of um, completely non-ordinary, I mean, for someone who's never done that, been in that kind of state, either through psychedelics or some other kind of more naturally mediated uh, mystical experience, there's, I mean, to to just take the chance of launching into that alone in your apartment with maybe a partner who also has never done that and tell them, like, hey, look after me and make sure I'm not freaking out too much. Like, you know, it's like, it can be very fraught. But I did that a a number of times. I don't know how many, six or seven times, maybe over the latter half of 2018. It's not like I was doing it every other day. I I had understood from Pollen's book that these are not uh, classically addictive. They, they, in in the way that so many other um, illegal drugs are, you're not going to be doing this every day and just like zoning out like trapping all responsibilities and just being kind of in a haze all the time. Like, you know, I had six or seven maybe experiences in the last half of 2018. And uh, so I think I was naive about, I can do do this without a guide and without, you know, just kind of only knowing about what to expect by reading, by what I've read, which maybe is helpful, but it also can set you to have certain expectations. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the second thing I was naive about in the beginning was like two or three of these experiences and I'm gonna I'm gonna meet God or I'm gonna or I'm gonna commune with some other uh spirits of the universe or something. And I'm just gonna realize I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna realize like what my path is now. And I will just begin to just take committed action towards it. And uh, just a couple of just just these revelatory experiences. And I'm going to get it. And it didn't happen. There were many good glimpses of some feelings I had not felt in a long time. Like wonder and gratitude. And sometimes uh, as adults, we can go a long time. Maybe for some people, they're all most of their adult life. Without experiencing real joy gratitude. And for people who um, haven't tried psychedelics, this is not, it's not, as, as, as Alan Watts said, there really is no comparison between being drunk on bourbon and being high on LSD. It's not just this kind of elation
1: of like um,
0: of like a night out drinking. It's It's very, very different. It's very different. You return to a state of mind, certain emotional states that you forgot were even possible for a human you may not have felt since you were 4 or 5 years old and it's a very transient experience of course and you if you're lucky it may some of that gratitude and, and and you feel more connected to people you feel curious about people if you're if you're a misanthropic type of person uh, who kind of walks around just feeling like you know everybody's an idiot except for me you know and it's like you know it'll shake that out you pretty well, hopefully um as it did for me often um and so there were some of these positive experiences but I never seemed to get the lasting really lasting like okay now I know what I'm supposed to do and I have the energy and the motivation and I know I'm t- to go do to it mm. um So I continued trying it and um, eventually realized that I would like to try it with a guide. I felt I was not able to let go in, uh, by myself at home or, or with my girlfriend there. felt so I'm not able to let go. I need to just, if I can be in a safe place where I know is secure, and I'm with uh, very experienced uh, clinicians who, um, who uh, you know, I just absolutely trust them that they know how to, handle me physically and emotionally in this state, then I will feel so much more relaxed and I'll be able to really just open myself to let the experience be whatever it is and just trust that I will come back in one piece psychologically and because they're keeping me safe and not that they can control where what direction the trip goes, but um, I just thought I, I need to find a guide. And the only... You know there are underground guides out there, but I didn't know anybody. I was plugged into the psychedelic community, so the only psychedelic legal psychedelic therapy uh, was ketamine. And um, being in the San Francisco Bay Area, it was not too difficult to find a ketamine provider. And so I tried that at the end of 2019 and end of 2020, and um, and again was not making great progress i had some glimpses uh it didn't feel as the experiences were not as um they were not they didn't feel as deep and as as profound as lsd and mushrooms um they felt a little more abstract and and just and just kind of um head trips you know like like a lot of like uh a lot of, I just idea, confused, I, just a lot of conflicting and just all the ideas of the world, all the things I'd ever read, all the things I'd, you know, just, they were often very chaotic mentally, uh, not really bad trips, not like high state of fear, but um, they just never seemed to really resolve. And uh, eventually I gave up on them when I did have one in right around the start of the pandemic. And I think April, 2020, that, that was, I would not, again, I would not classify it as a bad trip, but it was pretty uncomfortable physically. And I felt my heart racing. I did feel kind of scared. It was done at home. Some providers will give you lozenges to take it home. And even now there's telemedicine providers that you may be, maybe you're aware of Nick, and maybe some of the listeners know about that too. The first few times I, I did it I was in, you know, in the psychiatrist's office but uh tried it intravenous and, and intramuscular, but um once he was comfortable I knew how to handle myself in that state and I got lozenges at home. And in one of those last lozenge sessions, I just was like, This isn't I got very frustrated. It felt it stirred up all this kind of like weird tension and anxiety in my body that never seemed to resolve. It just seemed to Stick around. And I got fed up and with, with psychedelics and with ketamine. And I came home to Missouri. I, I had some talk with my parents one night. This was probably in May or June 2020. And maybe the suicidal thoughts were starting to float up a little more prominent for kind of the first time. They really hadn't been there in the earlier years. I mean I was I was like pretty unmotivated and and doubtful and confused about what to do in my life, but I, I
1: wasn't thinking about suicide.
0: But it was starting a little bit. And my parents I think realized that and they asked me if I would like to come home to Missouri and allow them to I, I kind of opened up with them about what some things I had tried. And um, they invited me to come over to Missouri and stay with him for a few months and maybe try some more traditional treatments. Now, as, as everyone knows, most of the psychiatric meds take quite some time to begin working if they're going to uh, work. Um, the first thing that I tried when I got home was there was a psychiatrist in my uh, home uh, whose main offering was transcranial magnetic stimulation. Oh, I should say that right before I went to go try that, um, I had been put on a few medications by my ketamine doctor from California. Um, it was after my last kind of uh, difficult ketamine experience. I was very anxious for a few nights and could not sleep very well, and then that kind of caused like my mental health to decline, even like slight. Thoughts of paranoia about different things. It's something I never really experienced before. And, you know, he was worried when he heard that. And he put me on, I think, Albutron and Zyprexa. Like, now, I had never known or read anything about antipsychotics or psychosis pills, as Peter Gutsche prefers to call them, which I like and appreciate. His whole, um, as well, um a policy of calling drugs what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, or not calling them by their usual names. Um But I didn't He's ask like any questions. Question. I was just desperate to get some sleep for a few mm-hmm. nights. And he was just like, take this thing called Zagbrexa and
1: sleep. And
0: just don't worry. And the idea, of course, was this is gonna be short term, like just maybe a week or two and then my sleep will be normal and then but I was like, on, once I was on it, I was just kind of like, just keep just keep taking it. And I needed it, felt like I needed it to sleep. And I normally would be the kind of person to do a lot of my own research before taking any pill like that. But I just was so desperate and it did help me sleep that first night and the second night. And so I just kept taking it. And so when I came home to, Springfield, to, uh, to Missouri, um, I, I was on Robutrin and Zyprexa for a few months. i Had been on them for a few months, I would say. Don't think I was on anything else yet at that
1: point. Although, can I ask really quick? Did that Did that psychiatrist diagnose you with anything at that point? Not that I recall. Okay. Okay. Not that I recall. I couldn't. He,
0: he may have, but. Um, he he was a he, he was a I mean, as you might imagine, offering Ketamine. Yeah, this was 2018. This was like before it had picked up as it has in the recent years. Um he was uh, not as much of a mainstream kind of kind of psychiatrist. So maybe he was not as driven and, by and oh and I was paying. <laughs> I mean the real reason probably is that I was paying out of pocket. Uh, um you know. Um so I don't think he needed a diagnosis, uh-huh. right? For insurance coverage purposes, right? People understand how that works, right? That's often what they're for, um, for the reimbursement. But um, so um, when I got to see the psychiatrist in in, in Missouri, um, I was already on those two medications. I did some neuropsych neuropsych uh, testing with them. I don't I'm trying to remember the first diagnosis that that he gave me it was probably major depression and that's what I assumed would be the diagnosis what I felt most accurately captured captured it although plenty of the I, I know that by the DSM you don't have to have it's what, what is it like 5 of 9 or something you have to have it's kind of arbitrary like that as, yeah. as so much the DSM is um, and there were plenty I didn't have and and you know a lot of my support system didn't think that I had major depression because I was not sleeping or being in bed for 18 hours a day and I was I was able to shower myself and I was able to go on walks around and I was I was not in some kind of half catatonic state you know and uh my appetite seemed more or less normal and you know so I didn't have many of the classic signs of
1: so-called major depression, but I do. I actually have the DSM five pulled up on my other computer here, okay. which is what I'm looking at. And I, I do want to just read some of the criteria because I, I do want to highlight what you're going to share that you've already shared with me, which is which other diagnoses you had been given. Um, and I and I want to just give people a sense of what the criteria are. For these different diagnoses, because it is, it's quite striking to me that you were diagnosed with a variety of conditions that you ended up being diagnosed with, and then were prescribed the variety of drugs. And I know I'm getting ahead of the story a little bit, but okay. but that's why I want to read some of the criteria. But but before I do, let me just ask you um, to elaborate a bit on how how you would characterize your suffering in this time period you haven't said too much about what what it felt like to go through what you were going through at that phase yeah, yeah. That? well i don't
0: think at that point in the midsummer 2020 i don't think the daily daily uh, kind of crying it was really a thing yet. Actually, I remember crying many days in uh, the psychiatrist's office when I was going in for transcript for TMS. Um, I just felt that I did not care about anything. Not in like a really um, um, negative way, like like everything sucks, and not in a real nihilistic, like angry way, like the world is, is, is messed up and and, not, and, and you know, know humanity is it's fallen. You know, yeah. human, human nature is broken. Humans, Humans are, evil are evil. It's like nothing like that. I just couldn't. I just. I, I had been through some with some psychotherapists already, and uh, and with um, some who were who had practiced. I think at this point, I've been with some mm-hmm. psychotherapists who practice like acceptance commitment the therapy, which is all around orienting around your, what are your values? Like you need to align your actions, your daily actions with what your actual values are. And it was so frustrating to me that I didn't seem to know what my values were. I mean, I, I kind of could remember Mm -hmm. what they had been at different times, but when I would say them to myself or to a therapist, they just didn't seem to have any resonance. I just felt like I was just kind of parodying what some part of me felt like I was supposed to say, whereas, yeah. you know, I was being being physically active and uh, you know, be having a healthy diet and uh, being family time, being around family, loving my family, loving my friends, and doing things for them. You know, but it's like none of it had any resonance to me. It Just was it had this kind of deadness, mm. this really cold deadness, and and it was punctuated by these moments where I recognized. I didn't know how to start looking for a job or like what kind of job I would even be able to do. Cause like, I couldn't care about anything. Just, it was just, it was just apathy. And just, I can't, again, it was not really nihilistic, but there was also some somatic stuff still going on that would often come up on meditation retreat as it does in particular in my, in my chest there was this really um, constrictive feeling that I came to call kind of like the the, the poison. Like it felt like it was just this really general malaise all through my trunk that, and it wasn't like clenched in the heart where you felt like you're going to have a heart attack or something. It was something more like you just felt like there was something draining life force out of you. Like there's just poison going through your veins, wow. and it would come and go. And uh, when it was there, I mean, I would try and meditate, and sometimes, someday, sometimes, sometimes during that time, I would spend three, two or three hours a day meditating. And as I mentioned on on meditation retreats, I mean, longer than that, but mm-hmm. but it never seemed to fully resolve. It would come and go. So there was that somatic element going on. It was all very compounded, I would say, and I don't I, by feeling so misunderstood by everyone, really by by everybody, my whole life. You know, just a feel feeling of utter isolation. You know, and I felt like, uh, you know, I, certainly my family at the least were, you know, they were, they, they had my best interests at heart. I always believed that. But they just still were not able to understand and maybe nobody really can. Going through that. It's extremely challenging to be with somebody in that level of, of apathy and, just feeling so bereft and i just don't know what what to do next nothing seems to matter and uh, i guess i guess anxiety kind of more high states of anxiety with racing thoughts uh, would be happening sometimes but when i think about those times that was, uh, I experienced that mostly when I would try to taper off certain medications, mainly antipsychotics. Mm-hmm. I don't remember having that kind of um, highly anxious, racing thoughts thing going on, except a few days right before, before I was put on Zyprexa. And that's why I was put on that.
1: Right. Which is very noteworthy. I mean, I, I know that, like, Peter Gutchen makes this point a lot, as does Joanna Moncrief, as do many other critics of psychiatry, many of whom are themselves psychiatrists. Um, and another, another person who makes this point a lot is Peter Bregan, mm-hmm. who say that so often people are prescribed these medications, these drugs, they're put on them for a long time. And then when they attempt to taper off, they begin to feel this anxiety which are truly withdrawal effects. And if you talk to anyone who uses street drugs, they'll tell you all about withdrawal effects and how intense the craving becomes and how destabilizing it is really to stop taking a drug that you've been taking every day. But when, but when we think of coming off of prescribed drugs, it's almost always framed as, uh, you sort of relapsing into your condition. And that is a very, um, it's a way I think that the public is misled, and and it's something that it's again it's it's very interesting to me because I think people who get addicted to street drugs end up gleaning a lot of wisdom about the nature of drugs that could be, and they have a lot to offer people who are coming off of prescribed drugs, because as we know, most many most much of our audience understands that. And I remember you put it this way in our last conversation that the the line between prescribed drugs and illegal drugs is pretty illusory. And there are some important distinctions like that legal drugs are regulated and therefore they're not cut with fentanyl or mystery ingredients and that the dose is always very measured and everything like that. But as far as the nature of the sort of active ingredients and the mechanism of the drug, there is no real line between the legal and the illegal. And therefore, the process of coming off of them is going to look the same. And so anyway, I just felt like it was worth really kind of highlighting what you just said. You know, every time you would come off, you would experience this anxiety. I think many people can relate to that. And many people are told, see, the drug was working. Look, you happen you tried to come off and look what happened. But this is an iatrogenic effect. This is a drug yeah. induced process. Yeah.
0: And you're often made to feel like uh foolish and irresponsible. Like, see, you're you're not complying. You 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 went off your drugs and this happens every time. So it's it happens because you have this condition that you're not believing us that you have. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's very frustrating and they're not and and they don't offer to help you taper off because that's usually right. I mean for many I mean there are a handful of niche psychiatrists out there I'm sure do that but and maybe yeah. and maybe do and maybe that's a lot of their practice is helping people do the gradual taper that you've talked about and your guests have talked about so much mm-hmm. um, but um yeah it was just horrible every time I tried to I tried to stop Zyprex like many times and, uh, and I had thought I was doing a you know that would try tapering off over a couple of months and, you know, kind of go down that by like maybe 25% of the time and it did not go well any of those times. And pacing around my parents' house. I mean, I think one time my dad commented, like, he's like, you're you're pacing around like, an an- like a caged animal or like a zoo that's just <laughs> like, just pacing around and it's just, you know. And I just, and, uh, you know, it was horrible I'm trying to come off of it and then as soon as I go back on it, it's like, okay. It's the anxiety is gone, but now I'm just back into just this kind of existential void that I guess is more tolerable on a day to day basis. But, um,
1: but, but everyone, not to cut your flow of thought off, but just to kind of put a final point on this note what a person let's say uh, attempts to come off of like methamphetamine or heroin or something and they're struggling, you know, and they're pacing or they're going through like withdrawal symptoms and then they end up relapsing as we call it and they start using again. No one perceives that as a good thing that they went back to using. Mm-hmm. But but the perception of when someone starts taking Cyprexa again and they're back to a sort of normal the perception is okay good we've re we've restabilized stabilized you you're back on your medicine so again it's just you know the perception of the american public and in so many cultures really has been manipulated in this way and it's it's just not an accurate understanding of what's really happening mm-hmm. and it's really it's really I mean, I would go as far to say a crime against humanity to make people believe that, like you said, like to make people feel foolish for coming off of these drugs, to make them think that when they then go back on them and aren't overwhelmed with anxiety or aren't experiencing withdrawals, that they've restored their health or something, They're, they've restored their chemical balance. That's a manipulated perception. And it's not it's not OK. Yeah thank you for, so thank you for putting
0: it that that way pointing that out
1: yeah so please continue i thank you for like filling in the detail on like the subjective experience of the distress the despair the depression and so now chronologically you're, it's we're in like 2020 you know, you're yes living in Missouri again i
0: think i think um I think this is a time to say that I was the, to speak about my next diagnosis and to me it was the diagnosis that became the most problematic for me um, that was uh, one day I was uh, seeing my outpatient psychiatrist and don't know don't remember why he had this impression it wasn't as a result of my testing at least at first it was just a hunch that he had hearing me speak. And he said, have you ever thought that you might have OCD? And I was confused. And I was like, but but I don't have any behavioral compulsion. I didn't know much about OCD. And I don't wash my hands for hours a day. I don't turn off light switches and I don't do repetitive behaviors for hours. I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well, it can also be totally mental. You know, it's kind of a pure, pure O as, it, as some call it. And some psychologists don't like that phrase. They feel it's some kind of misnomer, but, um, but, uh, I was open to the idea. I think at, when he said it, I was, I was a little perplexed, but I was open to it because I was wanting an answer. And this is something that, um, the patient, so, so to speak, as well as their family members and other support people, friends, close friends, they desperately want to get answer and the an answer. They want to confirm like, okay, the, this is an authority figure. who has been treating people for decades and they know what is your condition. And then they're going to give you the prescription. So at this point I was still fairly trusting of, of him and I was willing to entertain it. And I don't remember if I did uh, the, the the testing to confirm that, but I may have, I know I did testing with him, um, but we, he put me on, um, within a few weeks or so of, of me appearing to accept the diagnosis. He put me on the, the gold standard medication for OCD, which is an SSRI called Luvox. And, uh, over a few months, uh, we worked myself, we worked me up to the maximum dosage and, um, I didn't feel any different really on it. I can't say it gave me a lot of negative consequences, side effects as they're called. Um, At least I did not that I noticed at first. I later realized it was causing probably the, maybe not the most uh, extreme or troubling, but one of the most notorious side effects of SSRI, sexual dysfunction. It definitely caused that. But I can't say I felt that different mentally or emotionally. It just kind of felt like no effect.
1: And to be, just to clarify too, he didn't take you off of Zed and Well It was just an
0: additional. It was additional. I, I, he knew that I had tried to come off of Zed myself,
1: you know, a handful of times and that
0: had gone very badly. So he was like, a, okay, well, I guess just, you know, staying. There was no discussion of like, well, maybe we can do a slow, slow, slow taper. It was just, okay, yeah. stay on it around this time was when I started voicing, like I sometimes have suicidal thoughts. It wasn't like preoccupying me all the time. And it certainly wasn't to the, to the level of like an intent or planning. But um, once I said, that, he put me on lithium because he said, Oh, that can sometimes help with suicidal thoughts. You know, as if suicidal thoughts are just their own niche category of, of symptom. Right. A right. specific drug is targeting. I, that was seemed very weird to me. I didn't really buy it, but I just went on it. I went on lithium. I had not yet gotten a diagnosis of bipolar. Um, that would come later in inpatient psychiatry. But this OCD diagnosis stuck. Really stuck with my family. They strongly believed that it was because to them I did not have the classic presentation of depression. Of major depression, so they thought, "Oh, this is it." And I started seeing an OCD therapist um, uh, at a clinic that specialized in, in almost almost exclusively treating OCD, or at least that particular therapist. that they had a whole team that was trained in OCD and exposure and response prevention therapy. Um, and I did all these things called like imaginal exposures, where you record your voice talking about your fears and. Uh, the idea is, so for people who don't, uh, I'm sure you know, Nick, but um, for people who don't know kind of the different, there's many, many kind of you know, subtypes, right, of OCD that, that psychiatrists talk about. And the in, in the realm of the non-behavioral ones where you don't have behavioral compulsion, one of the more apparently common ones or at least talked about ones is harm of OCD, which is where you become obsessed. You have these repeating thoughts that like, what if I... What if I just become impulsive someday? I'm standing in the kitchen and there's a kitchen knife there on the counter, and my wife or my friend is standing there. What if I just like lose control and just pick up the knife and stab? To death? And then you become preoccupied with these thoughts and they loop, and then you have other thoughts that are kind of meant to calm them down, and you just get stuck in this cycle. Well, everybody thought that I had self-harm OCD, that I was obsessed, preoccupied every day. With the fear that I might impulsively kill myself, uh, just in a in a in a moment of, of no inhibition, and right away that did not strike me at all as what was going on in my mind, but I had everybody around me kind of telling me like that's, that we think that's what you have, and um, it felt very me at times. I don't, uh, I want to just say again, I don't think anyone was trying to make me feel like I'm going mad by disconfirmed by telling me that things were going on in my head that really weren't, but this was the, and my clinicians too, they would, um, it's like once everybody got it in their head that I had OCD, like my clinicians in particular, um, it felt like it framed everything that I said. That it was a lens through everything that I said. So I learned in in my therapy that you know people with OCD have a kind of um, obsessive need to have certainty in life about just about everything. They just cannot. It's a kind of anxiety of it's it's a kind of syndrome or condition of generalized anxiety about just you just need to have you don't know with certainty that you're not gonna kill yourself in three years by randomly steering your car into a light pole or you know people in your life dying or other tragedies you just need a person with OCD is this person just needs certainty and they're not unable to accept uncertainty the inherent uncertainties of of life like uh, a well-adjusted person is and I never felt like that was me, at least not on any kind of generalized level. But I would say certain things, and my therapist would kind of gently, you know, I, she was not too condescending, and I had a good rapport with her. But she would kind of, you know, try and like shift me back and be like, I "Remember, like, you know, like, yeah, we can't have certainty in life." You know, it did. It, it actually did feel kind of condescending to me. It's a, it's a little alienating. And I'm like, I don't, I. I don't think that's what you're saying right now is reflecting the problem I'm having.
1: Mm. So kind of in in keeping with the theme of being misunderstood, mm -hmm. I'm seeing more clearly now how how long that was drawn out. It was, and maybe yeah, yeah. Sounds like it almost got worse because not only did they misunderstand, but they thought they understood when they didn't understand. Right,
0: right. And I would continually tell them. That I don't feel that this is really my condition anymore. But then I think I would probably have days where I wanted it to be and I was a little more open to it. And so maybe it appeared as as uh you know incoherent or or just like I couldn't decide what I, you know, I was trying to kind of go along with them certain days, and I would want and I like I said, I did have a good rapport with my OCD therapist i i liked her uh, kind of on a, just like a personal level and i mostly was enjoying my therapy sessions with her but eventually it, it ended up that i went to while well, that would be skipping ahead now we've been calling on for some time now um i still have yet to talk about my inpatient uh I
1: do want to, I, I do want to hear about that yeah. maybe maybe we can go there in a second. I, I want so I'm tracking you know the the diagnoses and the prescriptions and so what you've mentioned so far as far as the diagnoses are major depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder and then you briefly mentioned that eventually came bipolar too. Yes um, So maybe as my first question right now, when when did the bipolar two come? So here you are, having been diagnosed with OCD, harm OCD in particular, self harm OCD in particular, never quite feeling like that fit your inner experience. And so, when did the bipolar two come?
0: That was when uh, I went to inpatient psych, okay, which I think was in the summer of
1: uh, of twenty twenty one. So, if I may, right before you elaborate on that experience, I always think it's important for people to understand just how subjectively these diagnoses are made. There's subjectivity at every level. There's subjectivity in the language of the DSM. There's subjectivity in the process of kind of voting in new disorders for every new edition of the DSM. There's subjectivity in the psychiatrist or psychologist who also diagnose in their interpretation of the client or patient, and their subjectivity in the client or patient's own interpretation of their experience in their own self-reporting of the symptoms. And so that's, I think, that the many, many layers of subjectivity, as well as the nature of the DSM. Can, accounts for why a person can have so many different diagnoses and I just want to give our audience a, a sense of these conditions so I have I have three of them pulled up and I know that there's a fourth one to come but but um, I'll read the criteria for major depressive disorder for anyone who's interested so this the diagnostic criteria are five or more of the following symptoms have been present during the same two week period and represent a change from previous functioning. And at least one of the symptoms is either depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. And so then they list nine possible criteria. And if a person checks five of these boxes, they can be diagnosed. The first is depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, or that can be observed by others. The second is markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities. The third is significant weight loss or weight gain. The fourth is insomnia or hypersomnia. So in other words, changes in weight, changes in sleep patterns. The fifth is psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day. Um, The sixth is fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Seventh is feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. The eighth is diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. Um, And the ninth is recurrent thoughts of death, not just fear of dying, but recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt. So that's a a wide range of possible symptoms, and this is... I think, helps people understand when they they see the wide range of symptoms that a person could possibly meet, I think it helps people understand that everyone who has this diagnosis, there's a lot more diversity within that group than people tend to think. And because the criteria are so broad, it makes it so that there's a lot of heterogeneity among people with the same diagnosis. And because there's so much heterogeneity among people with the same diagnosis. It basically makes it impossible to ever really find a treatment that would work for everyone with the same diagnosis because they all present a bit or significantly differently. So just wanted to make that point. And then I will not spend the time to read, but I'll skip the bipolar two criteria, but I will read the obsessive compulsive disorder criteria, just to give people a sense again of like, you know, how surprising it might be that one person could be diagnosed with these two different conditions in the same time period. So this OCD is um, the presence of obsessions, compulsions, or both. And obsessions are defined by recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges, or images that are experienced at some time during the disturbance as intrusive and unwanted. The second aspect of obsessions is that the individual attempts to ignore or suppress such thoughts, urges, or images, or to neutralize them with some other thoughts. Okay? And then compulsions are defined by repetitive behaviors um, that the individual feels driven to perform in response to an obsession. And the second feature of compulsions is that the behaviors or mental acts are aimed at preventing or reducing anxiety or distress, etc. cetera. So there's, there's more to it. I encourage people to read it for themselves. You know, you can access the DSM or many websites list the whole criteria, but I just wanted to say that because when I hear these two sets of criteria, there's already a wide range of symptoms within each diagnosis, but when then you compare the two, it's very difficult to understand how one person in the same time period going through the same um, bout of suffering could be diagnosed with two conditions that are so distinctly different from each other Mm -hmm. so just wanted to add that into this but i would love for you to now share any reflections on that if you want and then continue on with what happens next in your story mm-hmm. then.
0: Yeah. Um, as I said earlier, um, many of the depred, the classic kind of depressive, uh, you know, uh, signs that were absent in me. And so um, I guess that just left uh, the people in my life, uh, namely the clinicians, but family members too, to just, Once my psychiatrist had said OCD, they just kind of uh, thought, well, it's not depression. So this is the next, they just kind of, everybody just kind of like coalesced around it. And and it's like, I was not doing any behaviors that were compulsive. So they just, it left everybody just to speculate on this kind of subjective, like what must be going on in my, in my mind. And, uh, you know, when you mentioned, uh, before you were reading those, those definitions of DSM, you were mentioning kind of subjectivity of these, uh, these categories. And um, it made me, it reminded me of one psychologist that I consulted with. I never really saw him on an ongoing basis, but I I may have mentioned this the first time you and I chatted, but I'm glad I'm glad it came up, bubbled up when you mentioned the subjectivity of all of this. It reminded me of like the feedback loop that can be going on between a clinician and the patient or client sometimes. but I felt this happened. I had this critical um, moment when everybody became convinced that I had OCD. So I actually spoke with two um, kind of psychologists who were kind of OCD experts, really well regarded among OCD circles. And I had private consultations with them to get their you know 45 45-minute 45 or 60-minute conversation. Whether they thought I had O C D. Now I had already been told that it might that I might have it. And I had done a lot of reading and trying to understand what characterizes it. And mind you, I have in the back of my mind that like I want some answers here. I need to like I was saying earlier, the the client or patient is often you just like you don't want to just have some vague thing that's just like you want a play to action and you want to know that you are presenting as other people I've presented and you could. So what I'm trying to say is I think I went into those two consultations, kind of like giving the answers to confirm my diagnosis a little bit. Um, and those two experts both were like, yeah, it sounds like you have OCD for sure. Like they were very, very certain, like they sounded like, and, and they were very experienced many, many years of experience and um one of the consultations i even recorded so that i could watch it later and that so other people on my support team could watch it too and once everybody kind of saw that it was like okay this is the thing like you 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 need to like really pursue the ocd treatment so we'll come back to that more about that later perhaps the ocd because after i stopped going to this outpatient clinic, which was remotely done um during during COVID. After that, I went back to California. I seemed to have a period of a few months where I was a bit better. I wasn't crying. I wasn't waking up having the first thought of the day be like, there's no hope for my life. I think I'm eventually going to kill myself. Like that didn't seem to go away. And so everyone thought the OCD treatment, the ERP therapy had worked. Meanwhile, I'm still on all the same medications. I don't know if I had changed certain ones or added. I was uh so we'll table that for now. But um I went back to California and I don't want to go into this one this part too much. Um just out of I guess kind of respect for the privacy of my ex-girlfriend, maybe. And um even though it is definitely a critical part of the journey but i went back to california for a month or two and um i of course i'd been in touch with her and she had visited and and all this in, in missouri and was supportive as she could be from halfway across the country and i went back and uh in a few months um i i, I started to take another job in the tech industry and i quit it within a couple of weeks like i just sat down and i and instead of feeling extremely depressed or suicidal, I would sit there and it's like my whole mind would just come to a stop But not in like a really peaceful Zen kind of way. Like I remember the first week on that job and i would just stare at my computer all day and literally just could not do anything. Couldn't even think about what I was supposed to be doing. And this is a field that I was like trained in, you know, and had years of experience in. So it's not like I didn't know or should not have known what I was supposed to be doing. And I quit again. And I guess I'll just say that within um, a a month or two, um, I decided to break up with her. And that was extremely difficult for both of us and even for me of course i mean too uh, even though i was the one who who did the breaking up with and she left for about a week for we lived together and she left for about a week so that i could gather some belongings and just kind of leave um i didn't know where to go next I, I i knew i didn't i loved living in california i loved many things about it but I, for some years, had wanted to maybe get away from it. Um, I missed my family a lot. I was only seeing them a time or two per year um, Mm -hmm. for the decade or so that I lived in California, and I I was feeling very distant from my family, and I missed them. And so when I broke up with her, uh, whatever wellness I had gotten, Over the previous few months, just crumbled. I mean, I would say the reason that i I became convinced that I wanted to spend an extended period of time in uh, Buddhist monasteries, and I had done some research on many, and I had been uh, uh, influenced by and listened to a couple of uh, Buddhist monks uh, through the last a few years before that and I visited um, my my um, my favorite monks monastery and right right before COVID right around the time I was chewing ketamine for the first time and I felt that I needed to explore that possibility of being living in a contemplative insulated contemplative community for indefinite period of time. And uh I think my girlfriend was trying to be understanding of that and but it did not it was still very hard for both of us. We were together for 8 years. And uh, and uh so she left for a week and um I I my dad came out to help me gather some belongings. He knew I would be in a just a pretty tough emotional state and flew out and we drove my car home together to Missouri with some pretty limited belongings and um, and I cried all the way home and I didn't know what the plan was going to be when I got to Missouri I didn't feel mental I I didn't know that me breaking up with her was going to cause my emotional health to just absolutely crumble like that right away I just thought, well, I'm going to leave. And then I'm going to go. I had planned out all the monasteries I wanted to visit. And um, I had been in touch with a few of them. And it was start, uh, It was what I wanted to do. And I got home to Missouri. And I just was in, in an even worse place than I ever was before. And within a month or two, um, so like June 2021, I was, the suicidal thoughts were were. Were getting intense. Um, I didn't think that I was going to take action on anything, but i it was just miserable. Like I, I, I was spending a lot of the day in bed, but not because I was trying to sleep. I would just lie in bed and cry a lot of the day, pretty much every day. And I just I couldn't really do anything because that's just... It just didn't stop. It just... It was almost like sun up to sun down. There would have periods of a few hours where it would stop. But and uh eventually I just like I, I didn't I just knew I had to interrupt that somehow. And nobody knew what to do with me. And I didn't know what to do with myself. So I told my parents I wanted to go inpatient. And they actually were um not recommending that. But eventually, I did that. I went in voluntarily, and um, I think I felt a sense of relief. It was just that my environment had changed, and at least I'm not in that house where I'd spent so many hours crying and just steeping in a swirl of suicidal thoughts. And. I saw the psychiatrist. Uh, he gave me a pretty long intake, uh, and then, of course, every day after that, I would only see him for you know five, ten minutes. But I knew during my intake with him that I had a pretty limited time. I mean, limited, given how much I felt I had to say and get and catch him up on. Mm-hmm. And so I spoke pretty quickly, probably, and I'm afraid that I must have come off as medic or something i don't know but he patiently waited for me to finish and then he pretty quickly just said i you you have bipolar 2 you have a mood disorder it sounds like and it sounds like bipolar 2 and i was confused i didn't know much about bipolar i was like i don't think i'm manic. i don't i don't i don't have impulsive behavior i don't go spend incredible amounts of money or gamble or Out and seek a lot of random sex or any of the things that we kind of stereotypically think of as bipolar manic behavior, and he said, "Well, that's more like bipolar one, but bipolar two has this thing called hypomania, and it's like a lower level mania." And and I, he told me about that, and I was like, "I don't think that that even sounds like me either, really." But it seemed to be the pretext for him to. Put me on a whole host of medications, um, including what seemed to be his favorite medication, um, which is another antipsychotic called Invega. Now, I didn't know, I still had not read up a ton on all the different antipsychotics and their different profiles. And I was a little confused why I kept getting prescribed the antipsychotics, but never had been diagnosed with like schizophrenia or some other kind of psychotic condition and only later realized that like they're prescribed for depression and bipolar these days and it's like so it was an injectable um and i remember when he described in vega to me he made it sound very appealing and it sounded very good to me I, i liked hearing it he said it would make me feel collected and galvanized to take action in my life and well edited. <laughs> I'm
1: curious what you think
0: of that description of <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> what I well, To be t- t- honest,ly my, my initial impression is it sounds like a sales pitch. Yeah. It's like, it sounds like someone's just selling you on a product. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and even if, um, um You know, like certainly drugs induce certain effects, which might be described like that, especially the galvanization of an individual. If it's a if it's a stimulant, although this is an antipsychotic, which tends to be more of a tranquilizer. But but still that that's that's I'm not very well educated on in Vega itself and the mechanisms of action and the well-known effects long term but that's my initial thought honestly is it sounds great it sounds like possibly something that was told to him by a pharmaceutical sales representative potentially or that he heard at a conference that he was funded to attend or something like that or or maybe it came from a more genuine place of, of experience and witnessing people um but again the question always is to if Sure, there there are benefits like those initially, but as time goes on, things change. Our tolerance increases, the costs begin to outweigh the benefits. But anyway, I would just say, if I were you, I would have felt the same way you did. How how enticing that sounds! Like anyone who hears those descriptions, it's like, yes, yeah, sign me up for whatever that is. We all want to feel like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so needless to say, you did it, were injected with this. Yes. Yes. And and um admitted. Yes, I
0: was admitted, yeah. And uh I was put on a whole host of other things. Um he upped my Wellbutrin to a pretty high level, uh, that I think maybe it was re- overstimulated me and I got extremely poor sleep the first couple of nights. Really, most of the nights I was there, I ended up being there nine days, um, which is longer than their average visit, Um, the average patient visit there on that unit. But um, I was put on a couple of stabilizers. I was put on also Seroquel, another antipsychotic to help with the poor sleep that even in the midst of my stay, I... Felt was because of too much well but um, the Seroquel seemed to help me sleep. Um, It was a very mixed experience, I would say, on the unit. There were some staff that listened to me very compassionately, and some nurses and uh, psychologists I really liked as well, who would host group psychotherapy and individual with me, with patients who wanted were willing and who it's psych- psychologists felt could benefit from it um yes. so I had that and uh, developed a pretty good rapport with one of the two psychologists in my daily sessions with her um and so I had and, and I really felt almost intoxicated by um connecting with the other patients and hearing about their lives and what had led them here and hearing about their suffering. And just feeling a little less alone in mind, right because nobody on my support team clinicians or family or friends had ever gone through anything like what I was going through. but he some people who that and um, and uh, so that was really great. But I don't know there were there were there were still, There were still lots of times where I felt very invalidated, of course. And um, like after a few days, I started losing my train of thought like probably a dozen times at least a day. I mean, like completely stopped and then could not, it would not come back to me after five or 10 seconds. And it was happening to my roommate too. And we would be sitting in a room some days and trying to have a conversation about who knows what. And neither of us could remember what at certain points. And he would say, What was I talking about? And I would be like, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't actually remember myself either. And then we would take turns doing that. I would say that like five minutes later. We'll say, I'm sorry, I just lost it. What was I talking about? And he couldn't tell me. And I complained to one of the nurses about this. And she was like well you know as we get older it happens to us you know and I was like you don't understand like this happens to me like maybe once a year and the train comes back to me this is happening to me like a dozen times like she
1: just did not at the old age of 35 yeah yeah exactly and I just it's funny because I have this emotion in me of like it's and I sense it in you maybe that it's almost something you can look back and laugh at because it's so absurd and, and, and on a more serious level, that is absolutely tragic that the, honestly, the the brilliant mind of a young man be so neutered and so just disrupted in its functioning by this cocktail of, of drugs, um, so anyway, yeah, so there's like, there's, there's both sides that there. there's like, that's almost hilarious, but that's in a more real sense, tragic, but that would happen. Yeah. And I hope people are tracking because at this point, I mean, you've mentioned I've kind of been taking notes, but there's, there was the Zyprexis still at that point and Welbutrin, which was increased and Luvox and lithium and Invega and, and mood stabilizers. That's and seracil—that's that's, it's just shocking every time. Yeah. And I've learned of many cases like this now, and I still feel this feeling of shock that there are people, medical professionals, who rationalize this mm-hmm. and continue to practice like this. It is, it is insane. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you've heard it time and time and time again, but it sounds like it's still kind of shakes you up each time like i can't believe this is going on on a on a
1: wide scale exactly wide scale and this is what i kind of think of as the as the web of psychiatry and i always feel the need to give the caveat of like you know shout out to the great psychiatrists who have done the work to kind of learn more than their medical training may have taught them and who are very very careful about these prescriptions and always have a long-term tapering plan in place but but that is the minority (laughs) is my impression um and this in this web of like it's kind of like once once you once you're in then it's just a matter of like well let's switch the diagnosis let's add this prescription just this strange puzzle that person doesn't even need to be on at all Mm -hmm. so yeah so anyway please continue so you I I hear you saying and I appreciate you highlighting the the bright spots of that inpatient experience the psychologist Mm -hmm. the group therapy the connection with other patients and then the maddening aspect of it as well yes
0: yes definitely maddening most of the maddening moments were around the psychiatrist, um, you know, the person who has, spends the least amount of time with you uh, mm-hmm. thinks they know that they more than anybody else what's going on with you. Um, and uh, one day there was a conversation I had at the hall, at the at the end of the hallway, at the very end of the unit, by a window looking out on an parking lot, with this incredible nurse. It was a pretty busy day, it seemed like, on the unit, mid-morning maybe, as he told him on the unit, different groups going on and so on. And this nurse sat with me for like an hour. So I was crying, and we talked about all kinds of very personal stuff. And, you know, my Christian upbringing, and he was a Christian, and my experience in services, and, and uh, growing up in the Pentecostal kind of church, and we just, it was a very meaningful conversations. And later, a few days, a day or two later, in my daily sync up with the psychiatrist, he actually admonished me for taking up that much of that nurse's time. Like, he seemed to think that uh, once he didn't like a patient, and I think he didn't, I know he didn't like me. And I think it's because I didn't just kind of accept everything. That he would tell me. I would occasionally challenge certain things and try and clarify. I think I was respectful, but um, I was just, you know, not accepting things by default. And so he kind of turned against me. And once he did, it it, it felt like um, he was assuming some kind of like bad, bad will on my part. Like I was trying to mess up the mess up the functioning of the unit and just be a rabble rouser. And it's like, he, he was just so unable to see my suffering. And so, and, and, and just, you know, in the, in the way of, of, in the, in the way of like an authoritarian structure, like an authoritarian family home, it felt like he was viewing me like a child who was, an authoritarian father might view a child who was just trying to challenge him and turn others against him and just and, and, and try and be and speak and act out of place, you know, in, in the structure is, is very much how it felt to me. Um, he was just very invalidating. And uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier about many of my clinicians, not just him, but several others too at different times that I saw when I would explain that I didn't like my old field, they would be like, well, but when you're in your kind of condition, you know, you can't just leave here and just go back home and have nothing to do, which, okay, that's fair, but they would just, you need to, I I, I was telling him that I wanted to help people in some way in, in healthcare or in mental healthcare, or I didn't know yet something, and completely invalidating. I mean, we were standing out in the hallway instead of his office, and there were nurses around, and a few other people could kind of hear our conversation. And he told me and five whoever was kind of half listening, like, you know, you need to you need to get some work, and it, you know, you might as well do it in what you're trained in, you know, like just has no understanding of like what has caused me all this pain over the years. Just so anyway. Um,
1: and if I remember correctly, he was, he also ended up diagnosing you with borderline personality disorder.
0: Yes. I was about to get to that. Yes. Um, okay, thank, thank you. you for, yes. I was, uh, when I was ready to leave the unit, I had kind of my, um, exit interview, so to speak with the psychologist that I had had such a good connection with. And she had all these papers in front of her and, um, I was, I really was feeling a bit better. I didn't really have a solid plan for what I was going to do when I got out, but I was like, nine days is enough and I feel like pretty stable, if hazy. Um, and she handed all these different documents out to me about the medications I was on and, you know, kind of like all the official inserts and documentation and stuff. And then she said, now, I'm required to give this one to you, too, uh, because the psychiatrist requires me to. But off the record, I want you to throw it in the trash on your way out of the building. And it was a pa- pa- packet on borderline personality disorder, which I actually knew very little about and still have not read very much about, Um But I'm glad, I'm very glad that uh, she prevented me a lot of neurosis. uh, Mm -hmm. Because I knew that she knew me so much better than than the psychiatrist did. That she prevented me, you know, a lot of that neurosis by, like, just telling me, like, this is, this is bullshit. Like, don't, don't take this seriously.
1: So. Wow. Well, I don't want to make you, um summarize this sort of turnaround and what has happened since then too quickly but I have another I have about 10 more minutes before having to depart my office and I want to utilize every minute of these 10 minutes here in conversation with you still so just I tell you that because I know you would want to know and not just be cut off at the end but do you think in the next 10 minutes you can Kind of bring us up to date and talk about how things changed, the status of current drug treatment, if anything, and how you feel today. Yes. Um,
0: the latter half of 2021 got even worse. I didn't know that the worst was yet to come. I felt a little better after inpatient and then pretty quickly didn't feel so good again. Um, my family still felt they kind of reverted. They didn't take the bipolar diagnosis that seriously, just like I didn't. And They kind of reverted back to the OCD thing. I went to two residential treatments, well, one month long each, um, which in our previous talk, we also didn't have much time to get into those. There's plenty to say about those two, but I think the inpatient was probably more interesting maybe. Um- Suffice to say, those didn't, I, I tried a host of different medications there too, um, ended up getting on Cymbalta, getting off of Luvox, eventually got off of Zyprexa. That seemed that I was only able to do that because I was now on another antipsychotic in Vega. I remained on that through the end of 2021 on monthly injections. And still on a bunch of medications and uh, had all kinds of different therapists and, and, and group therapies in my residential treatment, none of which seemed to help, and especially the OCD support groups at one of the residential treatments. I, it, if there was ever a confirmation, And I didn't have that condition. Um, now, I know that there are many ways people might present while being given that label of OCD, but... Um, I didn't feel it was anything to do with me when I sat for a month in daily sessions with people that really did fit a more classical description. So I left there in about October and it was there that I came up with the plan to go to nursing school and it just seemed like a pragmatic plan. It seemed like doable. I could take an accelerated program in one year. I I will, it, it just seemed like it made some sense on paper that I was going to do that. And I was going to start taking prerequisites when I got out. And I got out and I was, everybody, my the people from the residential treatment and my family were encouraging me to move out of my parents' house, which um, I felt well enough to do, at least I thought I did. Didn't have a job or anything yet, but I got an apartment in in, in the same town as my parents. And moved in. And it was there that I I reached like a new stage. I was not crying anymore. I was not in high distress. And yet the suicidal thoughts got stronger than they ever, have, ever had before. And I started looking up methods and even buying some supplies on the web. And I didn't have a date picked out. And I wasn't making real, hidden preparations. But I became very, very fixated on it and felt it was what I must do. And um, that was at the end, very end of 2021. And but a part of me knew that it, as far as the actual circumstances of my life were, how much money I had saved, to how much family support I had, and my education, and all this stuff, my life wasn't really hopeless. If I could just... Find a treatment that would work. I still held out some hope for psychedelics, even though they didn't seem to give me enduring uh, relief, during closure, during uh, wholeness, before. But I started looking into ECT, or as those in the critical psychiatry community like to call it, uh, electroshock. I had my skepticisms of it, and I knew about the potential for memory loss. But I thought, what do I have to lose? I mean, I'm thinking about ending it, and uh, I started looking into it and talking to a few clinics that were there weren't any in my town. But I started thinking about it, and then I thought, why don't I try ketamine one more time? That was available locally. Something made me want to try that again. I tried it again. IV injections. Infusions. Um, six of them is the usual course. I took six of them. I started. It takes about two or three weeks. I was not even giving temporary relief during the middle of the sessions. I mean, I was literally like just awash in suicidal thoughts and hopeless thoughts during the ketamine sessions, which is kind of the way they they work for people, even when they don't give in during relief. Is like you get at least a, an hour or two timeout where you inhabit a different state of mind, where your your normal mental prison is kind of dissolved. I wasn't even experiencing that. It just didn't disrupt my mind state at all. And so I became very hopeless. I was like, this isn't working, and I guess I'll try ACT. What am I going to do? I persisted uh, at the suggestion of my dad and finished all six, and I just came out of it all. And I still... And shocked by that today, and I still see my condition through all those years as more of a spiritual sickness than a biological condition. And yet, I can't, I can't. That doesn't explain how ketamine just just snapped me out of it. And to be clear, I didn't have a, a transcendental kind of experience of being cradled by God or something like that. Um, there wasn't any any major revelation. I just suddenly came out of it. I was like, "Oh, it's it's all the, the spell is over." I, I just couldn't believe it. I was back, and I went and I went into the monasteries that I had wanted to go to the previous year. I spent about four months there, thinking I would maybe spend a year or more there. I spent about four months there and realized um, maybe sometime in. Later in my life, I'll do this from more extended period. But for now, I want to serve people. I want to be in the world. I want to be in the community and serve people in some way. I left. I, in spite of my experience at the inpatient psych unit, in spite of the psychiatrist in charge, I took a job as a psych tech there and I worked there for about six months. I decided I, I was taking some prerequisites for nursing school during this time and making progress. And then, in order to stash up some extra money before nursing school, before um, you know not being able to work during a full time program for a year, I decided to try taking a job in my old field. And I got one. And I left the psych unit. This was late last year, late late 2022. I was there for uh, some months. It was it was good at first seemed like I mean, it was very weird. I was like I don't I know this isn't a long-term plan, but I, I seemed to be doing well and actually even caring about it strangely a little bit. but yet I started drinking again and I started not liking my job after a few months and I was very grouchy. I did not like who I was becoming. It didn't feel like me. And I was laid off, along with my entire team. So it wasn't targeted towards me or my performance, but it was just uh, structuring and restructuring in the company. And um, I took some time off after that, and continued finishing up my nursing school prereqs. I moved, and I last summer I massively uh, improved my, my diet and exercising stuff that I had kind of made baby steps towards during the very bad times but never felt like enough you know but I really made some dramatic changes over the last I've really made some dramatic healthy living changes over the last seven or eight months and um, I've decided right now for now to postpone the nursing school idea it feels a little too directed All of my energy into just one thing for a whole year and putting a lot of money down into a profession that I'm not sure is the right path for me yet. Uh, An idea that came to me when I was still at a very hazy medicated state. I've since gotten off all my medications. I'm I'm not on any psychiatric meds anymore. I did not do a slow taper with any of them. I have to be honest and say that, but I know that. That is not the recommendation for listeners. Um, I don't know if the ketamine somehow helped but um, in, in early 2022, but my insurance had changed in January when I went to go start the ketamine sessions. And the new insurance company needed needed uh, proof that I needed the Invega shot. And there was some delay there. And so I lapsed for a month and suddenly realized I was feeling okay. Mm. So then I just didn't take it anymore. I remained on Cymbalta until last year, last spring, and eventually just stopped it. Um, I was only on it for about a year and a half. So I I suspect that because I wasn't on it for like a decade or more, that it was easy for... And I had stopped Luvox before um, under medical supervision at one of the residential treatments. And it was uncomfortable for about a week, but I was able to to just just stop that one as well. So anyhow, um, I know we're... You've got to run. Um, I'm doing very well now. I'm, I'm working part time at a suicide crisis line, um, answering the phone because of how meaningful that was to me when I was a caller for maybe a half dozen times or so in 2021. Um, I just started pretty recently, and um, you know it could it could be have the potential for full time. So I'm still exploring whether I might want to be involved in mental health care in some capacity, whether as a therapist or who knows how I'm still figuring out the path. I don't, I never got that revelation of here's the, here's the path. I don't have to wonder anymore. I had some, I had God or somebody lay out my path for us. Never happened to me like it did to some of James's subjects at his lectures. Mm. Um, Mm. And it doesn't for most probably, but it's just a lifelong process of, as I've heard many middle-aged and even older adults uh, kind of self-deprecatingly say at times, like, I'm I'm whatever age I'm at and I still don't know when I want to be when I grow up, you know? <laughs> that, that pretty well describes me right now, but I'm very comfortable with it in a way I've never been. And uh, just kind of got me feeling my way through what's next. And as long as I, I, I guess I want to end on a note of like, like there were some relationships in my life, some friendships that have been So critical for maintaining my well-being, even since getting better from the ketamine. I don't credit the ketamine only, obviously. It's a whole bunch of things. I know how hard it is for someone who's so withdrawn and in despair and has been that way for a few years to answer text messages, to want to be in public, certainly be around people. I know how difficult that is. I've been there for a solid year or more and I can only say that you know if you can if you have at least one or two friends who you think even if you've lost touch with them who you think might be delighted to hear from you and accept you as you are now and not kind of um, invalidate you or judge you that as much as you don't feel like doing that and might be anxious about how they will accept you as you are now, I would highly encourage you to try and reach out to them and um, get them in your life and let them know what's going on with you and, um, and let them love you, you know, and support you. So it's been so important for me over the last year,
1: especially a couple of people in my life who I'm thinking about. Yeah. That's, that's a beautiful Message And I am here to co-sign on that message. Um, Yeah, that's, and I just feel like that's not, not, that's not really typically emphasized enough. Maybe, you know, like exercise and eat well, that's, that tends to be emphasized. And those things are very important, but these relationships, particularly with friends where you feel like they're, they're not, obligated to be there for you like family is and family is also crucial but I do think friends fulfill a unique need especially in when times get hard so I love that message I think that's very important and I I I do like it. I am reluctant to end in a way that feels somewhat abruptly here so I'm, I'm sorry that I have to but but I just want to communicate that number one like you have my deepest compassion and i hope that you've been able to feel compassion exuding from me to you as you as you reflect on all the suffering you've experienced it sounds so intense and and i just think it's it's just amazing you know that in the same way that you were saying many people can't even imagine their life without alcohol I think many people can't imagine their life without their prescriptions um, and so here you are as someone who came off of a very high number of prescriptions and and you're you're doing better than you were and and I, I think it's probably also a critical part of your kind of recipe of getting better that you are serving others that you have that that sense of meaning and purpose and i will also say that you know you mentioned the possibility of getting into the field of mental health as a therapist or in some other role and i would just i'm I'm here to fan those flames i think i think you would be uniquely equipped to help many people so Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being so transparent, so open, so forthcoming about so many uncomfortable details. I think you've done us all a great service, you know, to put this out onto the Internet for for all of time. And who knows? We have no idea who will listen to this and who will benefit from it. But I know for sure that people will benefit from this so again thank you so much thank
0: you nick thank you for this podcast it's been a great inspiration for me and really helped shift my perception of what i went through and um, mm. i love your open mind and and your open way of listening to your guests mm. you know mm. kind of allowing them to speak as they need and not interrupt them and you're 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 so uh and connected to your guests and, It's it's been wonderful being a listener of your podcast and getting so much from it.
1: I feel that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You're You're very welcome. welcome. Well, to the audience, I will say until our next episode and to you, Kent, I will say until we speak again, because I trust we'll, we'll stay connected.
0: I hope so. So, yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Have a wonderful evening. I hope things continue to get better and that you feel like you continue to flourish. I wanna hear an update on on how things are going soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nick. You're Welcome. welcome.